Take your Bible, if you will, and turn with me to 2 Chronicles 28. Would you, 2 Chronicles 28? 2 Chronicles 28 in the Word of God. Isn't it good to be able to take your Bible and hold it in your hand and know that the first word in Genesis all the way to the last word in Revelation is absolutely true? That's a blessing, isn't it? You can count on it. You don't have to wonder if that's so or not. It's an absolute fact that God's word is absolutely true. And uh, that's what we preach and believe. And it's a very important thing that you settle that in your heart as you approach God's word, not while you're in the midst of it or after you've read it. Well, I don't know, is this true or is this not true? You can know it's absolutely true without admixture of error, without the possibility of error, without any error whatsoever. Second Chronicles chapter 28, I want to draw your attention to verse number 13. Second Chronicles chapter 28 and verse number 13. And said unto them, Ye shall not bring in the captives hither, for whereas we have offended against the Lord, for whereas we have offended against the Lord already, ye intend to add more to our sins and to our trespass. For our trespass is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the congregation. And the men which were the men which were expressed by name rose up and took the captives and with the spoil clothed all that were naked among them and arrayed them and shod them and gave them to eat and to drink and anointed them and carried all the feeble of them upon asses and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brethren. Then they returned to Samaria. Father, help us. Help us to grasp these truths tonight. I pray that this truth in particular would change our life and our perspective in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Corey Ten Boom, the famous prisoner during World War II by the German Nazis, was held in a German prison camp. After the war, she was released. She went around all over Europe and even America speaking of how God had taught her the importance of forgiveness. She writes, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps. In silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way against the gathering of people. He was coming to me. It was good to hear, Fraulein, that as you say, God forgives our sins. I was a prison keeper in World War II. He said, I've come to know Jesus as my Savior, and I know that God forgives. But I would like to hear from your lips that you forgive. His hand reached out to mine. I don't know how long he stood there with his hand reached out, but it seemed like an eternity. He did not remember me. How could he? One prisoner amongst so many. But when I saw him, one moment I saw the brown hat clutched in his hands and one moment I saw the German whip slapping up against his palm. My sister Betsy died in that prison camp, Ravensbrook. How, how could I erase the memory of all of that just with a, I forgive you? I saw her. I saw her in front of me. So thin, 
Her ribs were pressing through beneath the parchment skin. How could he remember us walking naked past him and all the other guards in Ravensbrook? And he didn't. Again, he thrust out his hand and said, I would like to hear from your lips, Fraulein, that you forgive me. My hand fumbled down in my pocketbook. I, I who spoke so glibly of forgiveness, I who every day had sins to be forgiven by the Lord, and I could not forgive him. It seemed like an eternity, but as I stood there, I realized that forgiveness was not just an emotion. It was primarily a choice of the will. I realized also that many of the people that we had helped after the war, who had been scarred and marred and emotionally battered by the war, had two choices. They could either forgive, and those that did went on to lead normal, healthy, productive lives. Or refuse to forgive, and those that did remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. Still, I pushed my hand down in my pocketbook, feeling the weight of it pulling my heart down as well. But I prayed. And I said, Lord, I can stick out my hand. I can do that much. You provide the feeling. And slowly, woodenly, and mechanically, I reached out my hand into his and squeezed it and said, I forgive you, brother. And instantly, warmth came from one to the other, and we wept and embraced. You know, it's hard to even fathom what someone like Corey Tenboom might have undertaken and might have undergone while she was in the midst of that German prison camp. It's hard for us to even imagine. It seems like a distant memory. But God, in fact, in that moment, did something that he is about to do in this passage. And that is he interrupted Corey Ten Boom's anger and unforgiveness. I'd like to preach to you tonight on the subject, when God interrupts your anger. When God interrupts your anger. And I want to take as our text, 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Now there are a lot of crazy things that are taking place in 2 Chronicles 28. A lot. In this passage of scripture, there is a king who has gone crazy with sin. And he is disobeying the Lord, not once, but again and again. In this passage of Scripture, there is a nation that is following his lead straight into the cesspool of idolatry. In this passage of Scripture, God is judging Judah, the southern two tribes. And he is judging them for their sin and their idolatry and their wickedness. And now in 2 Chronicles 28, we pick up the story in verse number 1. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and made also molten images for Balaam. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now, you said, preacher, this seems awful, but this is the result of idolatry. Children are sacrificed. Let me say that again. The result of idolatry is that children are sacrificed. Tonight in the men's prayer meeting, we were praying for the children of this church and the children of the families of this church because they're under attack. I've seen that even in my own family and in my own children, how the devil wants to come and attack our children and their minds and their thinking and skew their perspective when they're young and impressionable. He wants them to believe a lie. He wants, to, to, he wants them to do as I said this morning, swallow everything. Well, if you swallow everything, you won't be around very long on this earth. The fact of the matter is, is that the young people are under attack. And young people, I want to apologize on behalf of those in my generation and those in the older generation for putting you in such a place that you are sacrificed on the altars of humanism and self-indulgence and laziness and rebellion. The children suffer when idolatry is accepted. 
Now in this passage of scripture, they're offering their children in the, in the fire. That means in the lap of the god Molech, they would take their children and throw them into the burning pit of his lap. While the drums of Tophet beat in the background, they would cast their children alive into the burning pit. It was the idolatry of Herod that caused him to kill all the children that were Hebrews. It was the idolatry of Pharaoh that caused him to kill all the children of the Israelites. It is the children that suffer when idolatry is accepted. And don't don't you ever believe a liberal's lie that tells you that somehow it's for the children that they're pushing their agenda. Usually it's the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, since you brought up the subject, whenever a liberal opens his mouth, just believe the exact opposite and you'll come real close to the truth. Just mark that down. Whenever they come wagging their finger in accusation, you can generally turn that finger right around at them and find them to be guilty of the very things they're accusing folks of. Of. Do you know it was Heinrich Himmler, one of Germany's and one of Hitler's Nazi thugs that said, accuse people of what you yourself are guilty of. And you mark this down, don't ever forget it. The accuser is what he accuses of. So liberalism always comes and says, we're going to put this no child left behind together. We're going to get together and we're going to save the children. And it's all about the children. Don't you ever believe a liberal that will sacrifice children in the millions and tens of millions, upwards of 60 million now, babies have been slaughtered. I won't believe anything that one of those liberals says. Not one big, not one thing. I don't believe they love America. I don't believe they love you except your money. Now they love your money quite a bit and they'll do everything they can to get your hand, their hand in your pocket. So if you're here and you're a liberal, I, I don't mean to be offen offensive, but I'm simply stating a fact tonight that when idolatry is allowed, the children suffer. That's what's happening in this passage of scripture. I want you to notice four simple main points. Number one, there was a hellish rebellion. A hellish rebellion on the part of Ahaz. He's offering his children in the fire. Verse number four, he sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now when the Bible says under every green tree, you mark it down and highlight it, it was under every green tree. He sacrificed wickedness and idolatry. Later in this chapter, the Bible says he set up an idol in every corner of Jerusalem. He was a wicked king. Now this was not a pagan nation. This was Judah. This was not a pagan king, although he was acting like it. This was Ahaz, king of Judah, where the temple of God was, father of Hezekiah. Wicked Wicked, wicked choices lead to wicked, wicked, wicked decisions, lead to wicked, wicked consequences. And that's exactly what's happening here in this passage. In verse number four, it says he sacrificed in, in, in the high places and under, on the hills and under every green tree. As a matter of fact, when God sent judgment in the next verse, it would have been a perfect opportunity for Ahaz to say, you know, my heart needs a, a good bit of revival. God, would you revive me? Would you forgive me? Lord, what are you trying to teach me? through all of this. But that's not what Hezekiah or Ahaz said at all. You know what he did? He sent a letter to uh, Tiglath-Pileser, a pagan king, and said these words, I am thy servant and thy son. Come down and help me. Now, you know, I just want to go on record and say that would have been a good prayer to pray. Lord, I am thy servant and thy son. Come down and help me. And you know, you can tell a lot about a man's character when when he is under God's chastening and judgment, you can tell a lot about his character by what he does under that judgment. How he responds, whether he's humble or proud, whether he's pliable or stubborn. And the scripture tells us that Ahaz was stubborn. In verse number five, wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. Now watch closely. You have Judah, the southern kingdom, you have Israel, the northern kingdom, and you have Syria directly north. It's where Syria is today. And God stirred up the king of Syria to come down against, against Judah and against Ahaz. And do you know God does that? 
When a nation will not seek God, when a nation will not respond to the laws of God and the word of God, oftentimes God will send judgment by using an outside nation. And he does so in this passage. It says he stirred up the king of Syria against him. And it says in verse number five, they smote him and carried away a great multitude of them captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel who smote him with a great slaughter. So number one, there was a hellish rebellion. Now, young person, listen to me. You can rebel against your mom and dad. You can rebel against the authorities in your life. You can rebel against your preacher and against the truths that he teaches, but it's not going to end up very well for you. By the way, it's not just young people who rebel. Sometimes they learn it at the feet of adults. And the adults take the, the message and they go home and instead of having fried chicken for service in the, uh, at lunch in the afternoon, they have fried preacher. That preacher, who does he think he is wagging his bony finger under our nose? And where does he get off going and applying the, the scripture in all these bizarre ways? And I just don't understand why he has to raise his voice. And it's fried preacher this and fried preacher that. And do you know what the young people learn as a result of that? They learn to rebel. They learn to discount the man of God. They learn to discount the word of God. They learn to go their own way. Hey, you know, I'm thankful for this about my parents, that there were two times in my growing up years when my parents disagreed with a fundamental basic part of the ministry that they were involved in. But I never heard about it. Never. Not until I was older and out of college and in the ministry and my dad told me just for a matter of instruction and philosophy and guidance. And I'm thankful for that. If my dad had a fault, he would stay too long in a place. Do you know why? He wanted there to be stability in our home. My dad didn't have long ears and a little funny bunny rabbit tail. He wasn't a church hopper, thank you very much. The first little offense, the first little uh, offense, the first little irritation. You can't get people together without there being offenses. There's going to be offenses. But you can't, you can't just go from one place to the another and, and expect to have any kind of good, solid character and develop that and pass it along to your children if when the preacher says something that offends you or somebody says something and does something that hurts you, you just go hopping off to the next congregation and hopping off to the next ministry. I have a good friend that pastors right here in this state. And he said when he was growing up, he went to no less. He went to 200 churches growing up. The preacher would say something and his dad would get crossways and they'd go off to the next place and would never come back to that place again. Well, that's not good for stability. That's not good for spiritual health. How would it work if you took a plant, one of your bonsai trees or one of your, uh, one of your uh, palm trees and you say, you know, I like it out in the front yard. And the next month you say, I don't like it in the front yard. I uproot it and put it in the backyard. Say, after the next month, say, I don't like it in the backyard. I'm going to put it in the east side of the house. And you put it on the east side of the house and you say, well, I don't think I like it there. I'm going to put it in its own little planter. You know, that tree wouldn't have a very long life. I mean, that's what we do with weeds, but not what we do with good bushes, not what we do with good plants. And it surely shouldn't be the way of a Christian. You ought to get solidly planted. You ought to get rooted. You ought to work through the problems instead of running away when they come. You ought to say, by God's grace, I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. And I'm going to figure out how to bloom so that everybody else can benefit from where I'm planted. And I'm not going to kick out of the trenches when the least little offense comes down my way. Now, I'm not sure how I got off on all that, but hopefully it was helpful. Now, listen to me. I want you to understand. This right here in 2 Chronicles 28 is a, a, a case in point of a parent who was going the wrong way, down the wrong street, down the wrong path, and there were consequences as a result. And the consequences were that God sends judgment from Syria down against him. And Pekah, who's, who's the king, is coming down against him. And the scripture says in verse 6, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day. Do you suppose if 120,000 people died in the Bay Area, that would make national news? Or international news? I mean, how many people died in the earthquake in 89? 120,000? 100,000? 50,000? 30,000? 10,000? Well, how many of you remember the earthquake in the Bay Area in 89? You remember that? You're old enough to remember? I remember seeing the headlines on the Minneapolis Star and Tribune. And by the way, I was talking to your pastor and today, I sure wish you all would just have an earthquake while I'm out here because I've never experienced one. 
Now, I'd like to be able to go back to my, parent, my parents and my kids and say, I got to be in an earthquake. Now, I don't want any building crushing down on anybody. I don't want anybody to get hurt. I, I just like to feel it, just a tremor or two. So I, I'm just throwing that out there for anybody that can pray real well. So anyway, uh, think, think about this. There weren't 120,000 killed in the Bay Area earthquake, but there were in this passage of Scripture. And why? Why? Because of the sin of Ahaz. Wow. 120,000. And they weren't just any 120,000. Notice what it says in verse 6. They were all valiant men. These were soldiers who were there to defend their families and to defend their nation. Why did they die? I'll tell you why they died. Because of Ahaz's sin. That's why. Valiant men. By the way, you know when idolatry is allowed, the children suffer and the valiant men suffer. And it says, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. So it wasn't just Ahaz, it was the whole nation. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim. You know, I find it interesting that the valiant men were willing to stand up against Israel and against Syria, but they weren't willing to stand up against the iniquity in their own nation. It says, in Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Metziah, the king's son, and Azrakim, the governor of the house, and Elkanah that was next to the king. Watch this now. Valiant men are slain. Those that are in leadership are slain. And the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren. Watch, 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and took also away much spoil from them and brought them, brought the spoil to Samaria. So number one, there was the hellish rebellion. Number two, there was a horrible reward. Number two, there was a horrible reward. And young people, you listen to what I'm about to say. Sin brings with it a heavy price tag. It does not pay, it costs. Someone said sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and keep you far more, uh, th th and cost you far more than you have to pay. It's kind of like the New Jersey Turnpike back east. <laughs> it's a lot like sin. <laughs> It'll keep you longer than you want to go, ha have to go. It'll cost you far more than you have to pay, take you farther away than you can do. Listen to me, that's what sin does. Sin will keep you, it will cost you, it does not pay, it's not an investment except in your own self-destruction. There is a horrible reward. Somebody needs to say amen to, the wages of sin is death. And young people, you need to memorize that verse and let it sink down in your soul and let it, let it just resound and resonate whenever you see these Hollywood stars in their lives exalted and glamorized as if it's something good. It's not something good. Behind all the makeup and behind all the lights, there's a lot of broken hearts. There's a lot of suicide. There's a lot of misery. There's a lot of wreck and ruin. There's a lot of destruction. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And the Bible says here in this passage of Scripture that there was a horrible ruin. Think of it, 120,000. I don't care if you're for Ahaz or against him. I don't care if you're for Judah or against it. 120,000 dying ought to break your heart. And 120,000 men dying ought to break your heart. And the leadership in the nation ought to, dying ought to break your heart. That's what's happened. And 200,000 women Sons and daughters taken captive. That ought to break your heart. Now look at what the scripture says. In verse number nine, it says, but a prophet of the Lord was there. Thank God. Thank God there was a man of God. Now, those of you that are young men that are training for ministry, don't aspire to be influential. And don't aspire to be well-known. And don't aspire to be great. Aspire to be a man of God. That's what we need more than anything. We need a revival of men who will seek more than anything else to be men of God. And first in your own personal life. And then in your marriage, somebody that your wife can respect and love and follow. Be that kind of man of God in your family. Somebody that your children can look up to. And not just for a short term, but all the way down to the end of your life. So that when you step across the threshold from this life into the next. And you step on streets of gold, you can hear hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Be a man of God. Ladies, be a woman of God. Someone who walks with God. That's of utmost importance. Now listen, if you're not saved, you can't. It's just that simple. 
You've got to be born again. If you've never been saved, by that I mean you've never been delivered from your sin. By that I mean you've never accepted the gift of eternal life, which was bought and paid for on the cross through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can't even know or begin to be a man or a woman of God. But when you trust Christ, that's where it all begins. It's where it all began for me. Oh, that if there's anyone here tonight who's not saved, oh, that they would fall under deep conviction and immediate conviction right now that the Holy Spirit is saying to you, you're lost. You're headed to hell. There's only one way of salvation and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and whatever you've trusted in and put your faith in Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, it'd be perfectly appropriate if you're lost and under the burden of sin, whether you're young or old, whether you knew or or not knew to this church body, it would be perfectly appropriate for you to raise your hand in the middle of the service and wave at me and say, preacher, I need Christ and I need to be saved. We'd stop the service on the spot and have a person help you to Jesus. It's that important and we wouldn't be bothered by it at all. Now here I want you to see there was a horrible reward. 120,000 valiant men slain. Men and sons of the leadership slain. 200,000 women, children and sons and daughters taken captive and now they're up on a slave train. But Now let's just see what happened. Let's review. Ahaz worships idols and he doesn't just do it a little bit. He does it a lot. Whether you do it a little or a lot, it's still an abomination in God's sight. And it's not an accident that the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments have reference to uh, uh, get, have reference against idolatry. So Ahaz is leading the nation in this idolatrous worship and God said, all right, I've had enough. So he sends Syria down against Judah, the southern kingdom. On their way down, they ally with Israel and say, hey, you up for a good fight? And they say, against who? Against the southern kingdom, Judah. Yeah, we've got a score or two to settle with them. So they join in the fray and their own people, Israel, are a part of killing 120,000 shackling the chains and the tethers around the women and the children, the sons and the daughters, making a slave train and turning them back. Can you imagine how many soldiers it would take to carry or to guard or 200,000? So it was a real to-do. But right in the midst of it all, the Bible says a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. You know what I bet? I probably would guess that there's not a single person in this room that's thought about Oded recently. And for shame. Here Oded is in the Bible, and his name is right here in the Bible. And I bet there's not even a good Christian in this place that's thought about him. He's not a major prophet. Brother, he's not even a minor prophet. He's just a prophet. Now, by the way, We ought to get our eyes off of major prophets and minor prophets anyway. I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about the ones today. So many times we get our eyes on this big preacher over here and that big preacher over there. But all throughout the land and all around the world, God has his prophets. And many of them are unknown and most of them never will have their names in lights. But here was one of those. His name was Oded. Oded. I I bet there might be even a lady in this room right now who's pregnant and looking to name her son. Oded would be a good name. Oded. Good old Oded. Now watch. You'd call him Odie for short, verse 9. It says his name was Oded, and he went out before the host that came to Samaria. And it was a mighty host. 200,000 slaves, probably 50,000, maybe 20,000 soldiers. I don't know. And it says they, he went out before the host that came to Samaria and said unto them, Behold, because the Lord God of your fathers was wroth with Judah, he hath delivered them into your hand, and ye have slain them in a rage that reacheth up unto heaven. And now ye purpose to keep under the children of Judah and Jerusalem for bondmen and bondwomen unto you. But are there not with you, even with you, sins against the Lord your God? Now hear me therefore and deliver the captives again, which ye have taken captive of your brethren. For the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. And that was it. We don't hear about Oded before this. We don't hear about Oded after this. That was it. Three verses. He was an unknown preacher preaching a short sermon. He must not have been a Baptist. (laughs) Here he is preaching three verses. Can you imagine? Three verses, that's all it was. But his message was controversial. Now, I don't trust a preacher that can't, that runs away from controversy. Not at all. 
Now, I don't think that everything that a preacher says should be controversial, but if a preacher can't figure out what a controversy is and which side to take in the controversy, then I don't trust him. And I don't think you should trust him either. Because the Bible is filled with controversy. God has a controversy against sin. And it should be clear when the preacher preaches in public and in private which side he's on. If he's for or against sin. If a, you talk to a preacher five minutes and he's like one of the politicians. Well, I, some of my friends are for it and some of my friends are against it. So I stand with my friends. If he's a preacher like that, you need to get away from him. He's not got any help for you. He's going to lead you down a wrong path. I wouldn't trust a preacher like that. He, can't ha- he doesn't have enough backbone to stand on his own two hind legs and say, thus saith the Lord. He can't tell us a verse in the Bible that can give us clarity in a matter. He can't take a side against wrong. You're not sure if he's for right. Something's wrong with a preacher like that. And Oded, he was willing to stand against 200,000 slaves and 100,000 or 50 or 20,000 soldiers. Either way, this is all they had to do. This is all they had to do. Unsheathe the sword and lop off his head. That's all they had to do. He didn't care about that. He didn't care about the consequences. He cared about the truth. He was there as a messenger from the Lord. And he said, you are in sin for doing what you're doing. God sent Syria down. You saw this as an opportunity to jump on board. You kill some of your own countrymen and your own brethren. And now you're taking them captive and their widows and their sons and daughters. You should be ashamed of yourself. Turn this thing around before God zaps you. That was it. He was willing to stand against a whole host. David said, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people that set themselves against me round about. It was Joshua and Caleb who stood against the 10 spies. It was John the Baptist who stood against the Pharisees of his day and the political leaders of his day. It was Paul who withstood some to the face. Ladies and gentlemen, God give us some men and some Christians who will be willing to stand up, not always being controversial, not always looking for a fight, not always picking a fight, but at least being willing to get in the right kind of fights and throw up their sleeves and get involved in the controversy and the fray. Say, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Bible says. That's what Oded did. I want you to notice number three, there was a holy reminder. And by the way, thank God for the Christians that support a preacher who will be willing to stand. You know, we preachers wouldn't have many to preach to if the first little controversy came along, out they go with their little fluffy tail and their big long ears hopping off to the next church. We wouldn't be able to stand. We would, we'd get discouraged. That, that's the truth. We preachers don't, we, we don't have halos. No, we're not made of a different cut of cloth. It's a help to have some people in the congregation that say, attaboy preacher, amen, that's what we need. You just sick them. Well, thank God for people that'll do that. And here was Oded standing against a whole host and against an army who if they would have wanted to could have lopped his head off. Verse number 11, he says, now hear me therefore and deliver the captives again which ye have taken of your captive of your own brethren for the fierce wrath of the Lord was upon you. Think of it, his message was controversial. His message was clear. His message was convicting. His message was counter-cultural. Think of that. And since you brought up the subject of this, I want to say that these preachers that always want to go with the culture and be relevant to the culture and find what the culture, God delivers from that mess. That's not going to help us. That's not going to, Jesus said, Jesus said, um, they brought the man, to, the, the man brought uh, his son to Jesus who, who was unable, uh, who, who had a demon in him and the disciples were not unable to cast him out. And Jesus cast the demon out, and the disciples came to Jesus afterwards and said, why couldn't we cast him out? What did Jesus say? This kind cometh not out, but by prayer and fasting. Now, my dear friends, I want to challenge you. If whatever church methods are being propounded are everything but and anything besides prayer and preaching, walk away. Walk away. Jesus said, you're going to have to pray and fast. You know what that means? Sacrifice. There are some people right now who have loved ones, maybe even sons or daughters. You know what you ought to start doing tomorrow? Praying and fasting. They're under the attack of the devil. Start praying and fasting. That's going to be the only thing that's going to turn the tide. 
Now what do we do? We say, wow, what new method could we use? What new tool could we use? And I'm not against new methods and new tools as long as they are under the parameters of prayer and fasting. When the church gets done praying, they ought to get up and preach. When they get done preaching, they ought to start praising. When they get done praising, they ought to go out soul winning. And then when they're done with that, repeat the process. What do we do? We say, oh, what we need is we need an acrylic pulpit. That's what we need. What we really need is a little coffee bar. What, what we really need, what we really need is we need skinny jeans and a latte. Why? Because we all know that the demons of hell are deathly afraid of acrylic pulpits, skinny jeans, and lattes. I mean, they can't stand up against that. And when they see the coffee brewing, and when they see acrylic pulpits coming out, well then, oh, they start to tremble. I mean, are we so shallow? Have we gone so brainless? Are we so impotent that, that we have to resort to some, some modern contemporary hip method? Here's my new motto. No skinny jeans, uh, Costa Rican coffee beans, or fog machines. Can I get an amen right there? You, you know what I'm saying? We don't need all that. What we ought to do is do like the modern or early church and get down on our knees and pray and fast. That is what sets Peter free from prison. That is what turns the captive. Uh, 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 free. That is what sets the demons of hell to trembling. That is what saves souls. That is what causes earthquakes. Oh, okay. That's what causes earthquakes and causes Philippian jailers to get saved. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, prayer and fasting and old-fashioned preaching is what gets the job done. Not all these modern contemporary, we need this and we need that. And when it all is all said and done, the people that have all the contemporary stuff, they're not seeing people running to them in mass. You know why? Because it's just another empty scheme and trick of the devil. What we need is this book. And what we need is bent knees. And what we need is wet, wet eyes. And what we need is broken hearts. That's what will turn the tide. And that's what this holy reminder was. He was a fearless prophet named Oded who said, mm -mm, not today. Not as long as they're passing my way. Within 100 miles, I'm going out to meet them. And then you know what I like, number four, is a humble response. Thank God for a humble response. I'll tell you, I have a list of things that can be done to encourage your preacher, and I'll put them out, and I hope you'll grab them. But ladies and gentlemen, the greatest way you can encourage your preacher is to just do what the Bible says. Oh, just find out what the Bible says and say, okay, that's what we'll do. And we're not going to renege, and we're not going to go back, and we're not going to have a quorum meeting, and we're not going to have a committee. We're just going to do what the Bible says. When the preacher preaches it, respond. When the preacher preaches the Word of God, say, that's for me, and I'm thankful that the preacher's willing to preach it, and I'm thankful that he's not afraid. And when you walk out, say, preacher, thank you for that. That helped me. And don't just use words. Use your life to show it. A humble response. This is one of those great passages that gives us a humble response. Thank God. Look at what it says in verse number 11. It says, Now hear me therefore and deliver the captives again, which ye have taken captive of your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then certain of the heads of the children of, of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Berechiah the son of Meshillamoth, and Jehezkiah the son of Shalom, and Amasa the son of Hadlai, stood up against them that came from the war. And said unto them, Ye shall not bring in the captives hither. For whereas we have offended against the Lord already, ye intend to add more to our sins and to our trespass. For our trespass is great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about when God interrupts your anger. And God used this humble servant and this holy prophet to stand up against their anger. Is it just me, or does it seem like there's a whole lot of anger in this world? Anger at large levels so that politicians try to test the waters and see where the anger is coming from and then frame their message to in some way include that and harness that anger to vote for them. Anger between people groups so that they hate each other. Anger within a church body. Bitterness and unforgiveness and an unwillingness to just give it to the Lord. 
just seems like there's a lot of anger. Anger in the home. Unseen often in a church body, but in the home. Anger of a dad. Anger of the children who've been provoked to anger by the anger of the dad and the mom. Anger. Anger that destroys. You know, there's a reason why the Bible says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. There's a reason why the Bible says, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. And in the same context, it says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. There's a reason why the Bible says, make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man. Thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare unto thy soul. Oh, I wonder, is there anger in your home? I heard of a preacher in Texas who had just been filled with anger and his children went off into an aberrant, perverted lifestyle and the preacher stands now to say, it's my fault because of my anger. Oh, oh, that tonight husbands and wives and moms and dads and children, teenagers, would not follow the pattern of the world. What's the pattern of the world? Well, if you don't like something, you just blow up. If somebody says something against you, instead of gleaning the good from it, you just say, well, they're filled with hate. By the way, if I disagree with you, that's not hatred. And it's silly to think that it is. It's silly to say that it is. If I disagree with you, I just disagree with you. And there's something in that disagreement that maybe you can learn from. By the way, there's something in that disagreement that maybe I can learn from. But, but, but the attitude of the world is just modeled in the video game. If I don't like you, I just blow you up. That settles that. And it gives me some points in the process. It helps me win a game. Well, let me just go on record and say, anger doesn't help you get points or win at all. And if there's anger in your life, then there's something wrong, something deeper, something that needs to be laid to the cross, something that needs to be brought before the Lord. God interrupted the anger of an entire nation and army and those in the super uh, high up leadership roles said, you know what? This preacher's right and we're wrong. Better yet, God is right and we're wrong. And that a humble response, watch this, they turned the whole slave train around and headed them back to where they came from and they stopped the misery and madness. And this leads me to four final subpoints under this last humble response. There was a hellish rebellion of Ahaz and the people of Judah. There was a horrible reward, which was Syria coming down and judging them and Israel allying with them in an unholy way. There was a holy reminder of the prophet. Now there's the humble response. And I want us to have this humble response tonight. If God's convicting you about bitterness and unforgiveness and holding a grudge and anger, then he's telling you it's not right, it's wrong, let's get it right. Let's lay it before the Lord. Let's ask forgiveness from God. Let's seek forgiveness and seek to offer forgiveness where it is needed. By the way, forgiveness is the centerpiece of Christianity. The the Buddhists and the Hindus can't claim it as theirs. The Catholics and the Muslims can't claim it as theirs. It is the centerpiece of Christianity. No other religion promotes forgiveness like the Christian religion, like Bible Christianity. And no other religion have their leader who is God of very gods come in the flesh and be crucified, falsely accused, beaten, and murdered, and then say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But Christ did. So let's get our minds around what this humble response looks like. Number one, if there's anger in your life and bitterness and unforgiveness, number one, see the chains. The chains. See the chains. Would you say that with me? See the chains. Would you say it again, please? See the chains. I'm calling upon every Christian here tonight to see the chains that your anger and your bitterness and your hatred and your spite and your grudge holding and your unforgiveness have, have forged. See the chains. In verse number five, they brought them captives, a great host of them. In verse number eight, it says, they took of their brethren and carried away captive 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and took also away much spoil. In verse number 10, he says, Now ye propose or purpose to keep under the children of Judah and Jerusalem for bondmen? 
and bondwomen? Wow. Number one, see the chains. Look at them. Look how heavy those chains are wrapped around that person you won't forgive. Look at how the chains themselves are digging into the wrists and leaving scars and, and, and festering wounds. Look at how heavy those links are linked one to the other. And remember how you made each one? And follow that chain around their ankles and around the ground and look how it's binding your, your ankles. It's wrapped around your neck. And it's binding yourself. You see, those chains aren't ultimately hurting the one you hate. They're hurting you, hindering you, keeping you from being all that you ought to be. Number two, not only should we see the chains, but number two, confess your stain. Confess your stain. Would you say it with me? Confess your stain. Good. Confess your stain. Verse 9, the prophet came to them and said, you have slain them, he's speaking to Israel now, about those that they've killed, you have slain them, watch this, in a rage that reacheth unto heaven. Have you ever thought how far and wide your rage and anger reaches? How, how long of an influence it has? It reaches all the way to heaven. You said, preacher, isn't there a point where we can have righteous anger? Yes. But you know very clearly when you've crossed the line from righteous to unrighteous. So do I. The father wants to make his point, and he makes his point, and the Holy Spirit said, that's enough, the kids understand. And you racks eloquent another 15 minutes, or 20 minutes, or 30 minutes, or another three decibels higher. Now, let me say this to those parents, especially of younger children. Your children see everything in a magnifying glass. And they hear everything through five volumes higher. So when you furrow your brow and wag your finger, at times it's necessary to motivate and it's appropriate. But when you do that, remember, it's much louder and much more serious to them. So wait, you'd best just sit back and say, Holy Spirit, is that enough? And when he says that's enough, then that's enough. But you know when I know when we've crossed the line from righteous to unrighteous indignation. And some of what we claim is righteous is nothing but unrighteous. We ought to ask God to give us some humility and forgive us of our pride. So confess your stain. In verse number 10, he says, at the end of the verse, are there not with you, even with you, sins against the Lord your God? Hey, this was God's instrument, Syria was, to, to, to punish Judah. But hey, Mr. Israel, you've got plenty of your own sins. You're not standing on, you're not standing on anything but thin ice right now. Number three, we must avoid more pain. Would you say it with me? Avoid more pain. Number one, can see the chains. Number two, confess your stain. Number three, avoid more pain. Because he says in verse 11, he says, the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. In verse 13, when they had rehearsed what he said, they said in verse number 13, our trespass is great and there is fierce wrath against Israel. You know what they were doing? They were saying, this is what the preacher preached and we've heard it and we believe it. <laughs> we're going to obey it. We're going to sp- respond rightly to it. Wow. Thank God for a humble response. Nothing thrills a preacher more. Nothing thrills heaven more than a humble response that takes a person weeping to the altar, that gets that person up weeping and getting before their family and saying, I was wrong, please forgive me, that gets them changed in their life and changed in their responses and more yielded to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God. Nothing thrills a preacher more than changed lives. And these people are going to display changed lives. Number four, are you ready? Number one, we see the chains. Would you say it? See the chains. Number two, we confess our stain. Say it. Confess our stain. Number three, avoid more pain. Would you say it? Avoid more pain. This is deep and theological, this last point, so you better write it down. Are you ready? Use your brain. Now, I don't mean that to be insulting, but somebody needs to say it sometime. Isn't that what parents of teenagers say? What were you thinking? You know, Mark Twain said that when your child turns a teenager, you need to put him in a box. And when he turns 19, he, he, he says, put him in a box with a hole in it so you can feed him. 
When he turns 19, you plug up the hole. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's what you're supposed to do, but it, it does bring great in, in, in curiosity at times. But think of this now. Uh, we need to use, your, use our brain. God gave us the gray matter between ears, not so that we could just say we have one, but so that we could use it. Now, I want to use an object lesson right now that will help us. Would you do what I do? It'll help to illustrate my point. All right, put your finger in the air like this. Everybody with me? Everybody, everybody, here we go. Put your finger in the air. All right, do what I do. Watch, watch, do what I do. You know what that is? That's anybody that's disobeying the Bible. Anybody, anywhere, me, you, anybody, doesn't matter. What's wrong with her? Oh, well, she stopped obeying the Bible and she's not submitting to her husband and not honoring God. Something's wrong. Something's loose. Well, what's happened to him? He used to come to church regularly. Oh, well, you know, he just started to disobey the Bible. You know, there's, there, the, fr- the elevator is there, but it doesn't go all the way to the top floor. Well, what's, what's wrong with What's wrong with that young person? They used to be so sweet and submissive and joyful, and now it seems like they're, they're pensive and, and, and hostile. What's wrong with them? I, you know, something wrong with them. They just decide they're not going to obey the Bible. There's something wrong. They're one fry short of a happy meal. You know, the light's on, but no one's home. Something's wrong with them. That's me when I disobey the Bible. That's you when you disobey the Bible. The, the, there's brain matter, there's gray matter, but whatever's happening up there is not actually happening. All right, let's do this illustration again and end on a little bit more positive note. Can we do it? All right, put your finger in the air. It's not a trick question. I won't hurt you this time. All right, here we go. All right, do what I do. Ready? You know what that is? That's somebody that's obeying the Bible. It's just no more complicated than that. Whoa! Look who showed up at church today. What in the world? We haven't seen them in three months. And you know what? I think they're starting to obey the Bible. Amen. Hey, John came out to soul winning today. What? He, he only comes once a year. What happened to him? He's starting to obey the Bible. Hey, what happened to our teenager? They actually talked in a complete sentence and they responded like they're, what happened to them? Oh, I think they're starting to obey the Bible way down deep in there somewhere. They're, the light's on and someone is home. We were about to give up hope. Right? It's no more complicated than that, folks. And when I'm filled with rage and anger and I just run with the current of the day and I just blow up at everybody that doesn't like me or I, or I do the slow burn or I do a cold shoulder and I just let my life be driven by anger, you mark it down, it's this going on. But when I say, you know what, I'm going to get right with God and I'm, I'm going to control my emotions and, and control my temper instead of losing it, you know what, all of a sudden the light's on. It's no more complicated than that. And look what happens. These last few verses are awesome. Look at what happens. Verse 14. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the congregation. And the men which were expressed by name rose up and took the captives and with the spoil clothed all that were naked among them and arrayed them and shod them and gave them to eat and to drink and anointed them and carried all the feeble of them upon asses and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brethren. Then they returned to Samaria. This is one of those unprecedented moments in Israel's history. When all of a sudden a soldier standing near by a mother and a son, he reaches for his sword. Oh, Mama, what is he going to do with that sword? Oh, I don't know, honey, but just be still, be still. And he unsheathes his sword. And instead of bringing hate and ruin and destruction, he brings that sword up against their tethered hands and cuts the tether. And the tether falls to the ground, breaks the lock, and the chains fall to the ground. And then he finds those that don't have clothes around their shoulders and don't have shoes on their feet. And from the pile of spoil, he wraps their shoulders with clothes and he puts shoes on their feet. And then he turns that slave drain around the exact opposite direction of what it was going. It was going to captivity. It was going to judgment. It was going to slavery and bondage. And now it's going back to freedom and back to to, to some kind of hope, back home. He gets down there and, Mama... Where's he taking us? I, I, I don't know, honey. Just, just be still. Just be still. We'll find out. Mama, Mama, they're the palm trees of Jericho. Mama, that's, that's home. That's where all the sadness happened this morning. 
Mama, why are we going back home? Oh, I don't know, honey. Just, just be still. Mama, the soldiers are leaving. They're leaving us at home. Mama, what's happened? Jesus, I don't know, sweetheart. I think forgiveness just happened. I think grace just happened. I think humility just happened. Do you see it? Now quickly, before we leave, I want you to come with me to a place 2,000 years ago where the wrath of man was up against God and they nailed the Son of God to the cross and they falsely accused him and they whipped him and they beat him until he was covered from head to toe with his blood. And they put him down on the cross and lift that cross up in the air and let it come down with a thud into the ground and it pulls all of his bones out of joint and there, hanging between heaven and earth, Jesus Christ reached out to a holy God and reached out to angry man and he cried, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He cried and said, to Telestai, it is finished. And when he cried, he gave up the ghost after paying sin's debt. And you and I, when we come to the cross with our heavy burdens and our angry souls and even the fierce wrath of God against us, and we believe on Jesus and we trust in him, the burden rolls away and the chains fall off and the bondage dissipates like a fog in the San Francisco Bay. And all of a sudden we look up to the cross and we say, oh, the burden is gone, and the chains are gone. Oh, what happened? Precious Lord, what happened? And he says, forgiveness just happened, and grace just happened. Now, if you've received such forgiveness, doesn't it reach down into the innermost depths of your soul and make you want to give it? I wonder tonight if God has interrupted your anger. Would you bow with me? You've been so patient and kind, and I'm very grateful. I wonder with your heads bowed and eyes closed too tonight, would say, Preacher, without a doubt, I know I'm saved. There's no question in my mind. Jude said, Preacher, the truth of the matter is, there have been some things that have been making me angry lately. And I've crossed the line from righteous to unrighteous anger. I've been angry in my home and angry at my work. I've been angry at my family. And I need to ask God to forgive me for my anger. I need to ask God to help me release someone of a debt and forgive them. If that's you, would you pray? Say, preacher, pray for me. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? God bless you. God bless you. Who else? Slip up your hand. Slip it up high. Say, preacher, I've been angry and I want to ask the Lord to forgive me and if need be, ask others to forgive me. God's spoken to you. Anybody else? Just slip up your hand. Put it right back down. Preacher, pray for me. Preacher, pray with me. God bless you. Question number two, how many of you without doubt and without hesitation can say, Preacher, I know I'm saved. I'm not hoping to get to heaven. I'm not trying my best to get there. I know I'm saved. If you don't know that, don't raise your hand. But if you do, would you just slip your hand up high, Preacher, without a doubt? I know I'm saved and I can testify to that fact. Slip your hand up and keep it up just for a moment. Preacher, I know I'm saved. There's no doubt here. I've been born again. Thank you. you. May put your hands down. I wonder if you're one who couldn't raise your hand. You said, Brother Smith, I don't know that. When you were talking about sins forgiven at the cross, I, I've heard about Jesus and, and, and I've actually accepted him as a religious finger, figure, but I don't know that, that he's mine and that I'm his. I need to be saved and I want to be saved. Would you pray for me? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Is there anybody here like that? Young or old, man or woman, just slip it up. I'll see it. Pastor will see it. We'll pray for you in just a moment. Is there anyone at all? Say, preacher, pray for me. I could not raise my hand a moment ago. I do not know what it is to be forgiven of my sins and to be washed in the blood, but I need to know and I want to know. Is there anyone at all? Slip up your hand. Preacher, pray for me. Anyone at all? I'll wait just a moment.
Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, everyone standing. The pianist is playing. The invitation has begun. God's spoken to your heart. Would you come? You raised your hand saying so. Would you come? Maybe you need to come with your loved one, your family, your spouse, and say, would you forgive me for my anger against you? God's spoken to you. Would you come? Would you have a humble response tonight? Would you let the Lord Jesus have his way? God's speaking to you now. Would you come? Would you sing that first verse if you know it? If you don't, just hum along. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb. Of God I come, I come.